This morning, we will be considering the triumphal entry, the time in which Jesus is publicly proclaimed as the Messiah and the King of Israel. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, it reads, And the crowds that went before him and them that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In this passage, we have a proclamation of Jesus as king and as Messiah. However, his kingship was not going to be established in the way in which the Jewish leaders had thought that the Messiah would establish that leadership. Before Jesus is going to literally reign upon this earth, first he is going to have to die for the sins of the people. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to be ascended into heaven. And one day he is returning and we still are awaiting that return. When Jesus does return, he is going to set everything right. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it refers to the birth of the Lord, it says these famous words, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will be zealous. God will be assuring that all of this will take place, that there will be a time of complete righteousness and justice forevermore. This morning we have just a foretaste of Jesus setting things right. And we look at what is the theme of this passage, and that is that Jesus demonstrates the need for temple reform. Jesus is going to start this great transformation that is going to take place in the world by starting with his own people. It is we who are going to be used of God to ultimately establish his kingdom as Jesus returns. But Jesus needs to bring about reform with his people. Upon entering Jerusalem, the first place that Jesus goes to is the temple. You look with me at Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 10. Jesus is now entered in Jerusalem, having ridden on that borrowed colt. And it reads, starting at Matthew 21.10, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. The temple is Jesus' priority. This is the starting point of the reforms for the evil of this world. The focus of the narrative is clearly upon the temple. Repeatedly, it draws our attention to the temple itself. Starting at verse 12, just note how often the temple is referred to. And Jesus entered the temple and drove 
all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So our focus is going to be on the reforms that were needed as demonstrated by Jesus' actions that were performed in the temple. The first is that upon entering the temple, Jesus demonstrates the need for reform by driving out the people doing business in the temple. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. The business that they were performing is more fully described. The business that they were performing is, first of all, money changing. Money changing, verse 12. You overturned the tables of the money changers. The money changers were those who were exchanging Roman currency for the currency that was used in the temple. If one was going to offer a gift in the temple, one was not going to use Roman currency, but the temple had its own currency. And so as worshipers would come, there would be people there that would take their Roman currency and turn it into temple currency. There are also those that were selling pigeons for sacrifice. At the end of verse 12, it says, in the seats of those who sold pigeons. Worshippers would come from a long, long distance in order to worship at the festival days in Jerusalem. It would have been difficult for them to have brought their sacrifices with them on this journey. So the vendors were providing a service for the worshipers. They would come, they would exchange their Roman currency for temple currency, and then they would buy their sacrifices of pigeons in order to offer them unto God. We find that Jesus rather aggressively handles this situation. First, he drives out those who were doing business. Notice verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who bought and sold. This word, to drive out, implies a degree of forcefulness. He took action against them. He not only spoke against the practice, but he actually physically got involved with driving them out of the temple area. And we also see Jesus' aggressive actions in turning over the tables and chairs in verse 12. Notice it says, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats. This was a demonstration of just how much contempt Jesus had for what was taking place in the temple. And you can imagine it would create quite a stir. Uh, No one was used to someone walking into this sacred, holy place and all of a sudden turning it on its head and just starting to overthrow tables, overthrow chairs, and literally driving people out 
of the temple, demonstrating the unacceptability of their practice. So we need to first ask the question, why was Jesus so incensed by the buying and selling that was taking place? Well, the next verse tells us why this reform was needed. The first reason was because they were exploiting the worshipers. You notice in verse 13 it says, He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. You are making it a place of iniquity. You are literally stealing from people. And they stole from the people in two ways. First, they defrauded the people through the exchanging of the monies by devaluating the Roman money and overvaluating the uh, currency of the temple. And so they stole from the people in the exchange rate in which they were exchanging currency. The second way in which they stole from the people was in the exorbitant prices that they were charging for these pigeons that were to be used in sacrifice. They were making money at the expense of others. But in addition to this wickedness of uh, robbing people, they were exploiting the poor in particular. We see that in the fact that the pigeons are mentioned in verse 12. Notice it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now why are they singled out? Why this particular animal for sacrifice? We can assume that there were other sacrifices that were being sold as well, other animals. Well, I believe the reason that the pigeons are singled out is because of what the scriptures have to say concerning the offering of a pigeon for sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7, it reads as follows. After describing the sacrificial animals that are to be given of a lamb, a goat, etc., it says in Leviticus 5, verse 7, But if he cannot afford a lamb... Then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. So the poor were allowed to offer a pigeon instead of a, a lamb or a goat because it was too expensive. So the poor could offer pigeons. So they had the pigeons there for sale for the poor people. But here they are exploiting even the poor who can't afford a decent sacrifice, if you will, and taking advantage of those that are coming in order to confess their sin, in order to acknowledge their wrongdoing. And here are people coming to acknowledge their own wrongdoing, coming to acknowledge their own sinfulness, and the temple leaders are sinning against them and against God by robbing them and exploiting them. Secondly, Jesus was incensed because they had failed to value prayer in verse 13. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be a, called a house of prayer. That is, instead of exploiting others, these were individuals that themselves should be praying. They should be 
offering up their own sacrifice, seeking forgiveness from God. They were to come to God to fulfill their needs. They were not to be trusting in their own power and their own deceit in order to achieve these ends. This statement about the temple becoming a den of robbers is a quotation that is cited from Isaiah chapter 56. So let me give you the context of the original statement. In decrying against the temple, God said in Isaiah 55, excuse me, 56 verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant, these will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This was to be a, a place where everyone could gather in order to offer their sacrifice of praise and seek forgiveness from God. But that emphasis had been lost. That importance had been diminished. And instead it became a ritual, and unfortunately a ritual that was characterized by sinfulness. The application is the temple worshipers failed to see themselves as spiritually needy, and especially those that were in charge of the temple worship. They failed to appreciate the forgiveness that was available to them. They were coming to engage in a mere ritual. And we're to see the corruptness of the Jewish leaders. We're to see how far they have wandered from the truth. And remember, it is these same Jewish leaders who are in charge of the temple and who are exploiting the people who are going to use that, those very exploited funds to pay for first witnesses that are going to lie at Jesus' trial. When he's put on trial for <clears throat> disobedience to the Roman government, the Jewish leaders pay false witnesses from these very monies that are being exploited. And secondly, remember that Judas is going to be given 30 pieces of silver in order to betray Jesus. This money is going to come from the Jewish leaders. This money, it specifically says, is temple money. This is money that comes through this exploitation using their corrupted nature and sinfulness to actually seek to destroy Jesus. You can see the wickedness that underlies this buying and selling which so incensed Jesus. Secondly, upon entering the table, temple, Jesus demonstrates the need for reform by healing the blind and the lame. Jesus not only turned the tables upside down, but he turned the traditions upside down as well. If you look at verse 14, it reads, And the blind and the lame came to him, and now these important words, in the temple, in the temple, and he healed them. This is the last healing account in Jesus' 
ministry. But what is significant for us this morning is that it takes place in the temple itself. And as such, it is climactic. Jesus had been performing miracles previous to this. But on those occasions, Jesus had always performed those miracles outside of the temple, temple confines. Uh, he performed miracles in people's homes. He performed miracles in the countryside. He performed miracles in association even with a synagogue, but no miracles in the temple. Today, there are going to be miracles in the temple. What is so unique about that is that it become commonplace for the blind and the lame to be banned from temple worship. That was a result of two factors. First, in the time of David, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, it is David who first bans the uh, lame and the blind from temple worship. The Old Testament law forbade that the blind and the lame would serve as priests in the temple. Leviticus 21, 17, 18, it reads, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish that shall draw near, a blind man or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or limb too long. So a priest could not be blind or lame. But there was not a restriction for the lame or the blind to actually worship before God. However, that became the norm, as I said. But Jesus welcomes the lame and the blind into the temple area. And not only does he welcome them into the temple area, but he heals them. He heals them, making them whole. These individuals that are coming to worship God are going to find themselves now able to see and able to walk. The application is that those who saw themselves as needy were welcome. They were welcome. Jesus did not exclude them, but Jesus actually encouraged them to come. And these are, in fact, the very people that should be coming to worship and to give thanks and praise to God. Jesus makes allusion time and time again to the Pharisees when Jesus would heal the blind and refer to them as those that are spiritually blind, those that are in need of spiritual healing, those whose eyes needed to be open. And there's a, a progression of thought in this particular passage. We, we move from the exploitation and 
the lack of seeing one's own spiritual need to those that are needy, who Jesus meets their need, now to this third, and that is upon entering the temple, Jesus demonstrates the need for reform by receiving praise from the children. By receiving praise from the children. The Jewish leaders saw the amazing things that Jesus was doing in verse 15. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the miracles that Jesus were performing were undeniable. One could not miss what Jesus was doing. It was obvious to all. Here was Jesus taking a man who was blind and giving him the ability to see. Another man who was lame and giving him the ability to walk. He did this in a public setting. He did this in the temple confines. He did this in front of the high priests. They could not escape its notice. They witnessed it all. They saw the throwing over of the tables and chairs. And they had asked him in another account, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, Jesus is demonstrating his authority. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who is object of this worship. And so the Jewish leaders saw the effect that Jesus was having upon the crowds, including even the children, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, when people are, are just exalting Jesus and praising God for what Jesus is doing, the scribes, the, the Pharisees, they go nuts at the end of verse 15. It says they were indignant. They were angry. How dare he? How dare he? Listen to what they are saying. Jesus, do you not hear what they are saying about you? They did not view Jesus as worthy of such praise and adoration. And they thought that Jesus should silence the crowd. That he should say, no, no, I'm not worthy of this praise. No, I'm not worthy of this exaltation. No, you must be silent. They expected Jesus to silence the crowds and the children. They did not see him as worthy. They saw themselves in the right and Jesus in the wrong. They were not ready to accept the rebukes of Jesus. Instead, they wanted to rebuke him. Jesus cites scripture to demonstrate what side the priests are on in verse 16. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. And now this, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. 
This is a quotation from Psalm 8, verse 2. Let me read the quotation and the citation in its entirety. Psalm 8, verse 2 reads as follows. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. In citing this verse, Jesus is saying, you're the enemy. You're the foe. You're the avenger. In seeking to silence this worship and praise of me, you are standing in opposition to God. You are doing evil. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, points out three truths that should have been learned from Jesus' citation of Psalm verse 8. I thought these were very good, and I'm just going to quote them. The first is this. This is from D.A. Carson. First, it provides a biblical basis to justify Jesus' refusal to silence the children. This is something that God himself had ordained. This is something that God said should take place. This is something that Almighty God has given his stamp of approval upon. Listen to the words of Psalm 8, verse 2. You have ordained praise. God the Father had established this praise to be rendered unto Jesus. It was unmistakable. It was undeniable. Second, and he says it's more important. I don't really know that it's more important, but second, Jesus was implicitly saying something very important about himself. Even if no one commented on that fact, the passage from Psalm 82 envisages, I have a hard time pronouncing that word, but praise directed, I'll use the word envisions, praise directed toward God, but the children were directing their acclamation to the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus used of this Old Testament text to justify what the children were doing can only be explained if he held that he should receive the praise given to God. You see, and that's what the scribes and the priests were finding fault with. They're saying, Jesus, this praise is to be reserved for God alone. Only God should reserve this praise. And especially in the temple. You're going to stand in the temple of God and allow the praise that belongs to God to go to you. Exactly. 
Exactly. Exactly. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is God. And the third aspect is that the quotation reminds the reader once more. That is the humble, the children, who perceive spiritual truths and spiritual reality, while the sophisticated all too often spend their energies debunking or combating them. There's a great contrast between the children and the scribes and the Pharisees. These were truths that children could understand. And yet, they were truths that the scribes and the Pharisees, those that were formerly trained in the scriptures, failed to understand. But you must understand that the failure was not an intellectual failure. It was a moral failure. They refused to hear. They refused to acknowledge who Jesus was. It was that very same corruption. It was that very same exploitation of others that kept them from acknowledging and confessing and repenting to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They had to admit their own sinfulness. And it was that sinfulness that caused them to reject Jesus. He says to them, do you not know? Of course they knew. Of course they knew. They knew Psalm 8 well. And when Jesus alluded to it, they understood its implications. They understood what he was saying. And it just made them all the more angry. It made them all the more furious. And it made them all the more desirous of seeing Jesus dead. And so they're going to hire the false witnesses. They're going to pay Judas to betray Jesus. They're going to turn him over to Pontius Pilate. They're going to say he deserves death. When Pilate is going to offer to set him free, they're going to yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because they don't want to repent of their sin. This was the greatest reform that was needed. They could not continue on rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, the one who is the Lord and Savior, the one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is very God in the flesh. The application is that many people know the historical element of today, triumphal entry where Jesus is proclaimed the Messiah and Lord. But the real issue is, have we come to realize him as our own personal Lord and Savior? 
have we come to acknowledge our own need of one who can make us right before God, the one who can take away our sins. There is no other. There is no other. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. But by me. Jesus has to be acknowledged as the Lord and Savior that he is. And in order to do that, we have to acknowledge our own need of forgiveness, our own sinfulness, our own desire to cry out to Jesus to save us from our sins. That is the true measure of worship. And any worship that doesn't begin there is unacceptable to God. It's a man-made worship. But it's not a true worship of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus' response is to leave them in verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is a strong word where it says that he left them. It doesn't simply mean that he exited the temple. It means he washed his hands of them. He left them. He left them. These actions were a symbolic action. Jesus was demonstrating his disgust of the temple worship. Now Jesus would return to the temple throughout the week. This is not his last visit to the temple before he dies. Nonetheless, it was an action of condemnation. It was a statement of what he thought about the worship that was taking place. And of course, in 70 AD, the temple would be completely destroyed and the sacrificial system would end. Just a few chapters later, in chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple. On another day of the last week of his life, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? They say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This temple is going to be destroyed. And the reason the temple was going to be destroyed is because Jesus died and rose again. And even on that very Good Friday that we celebrate, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, demonstrating the way into the most holy place had now been made possible through the death, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Temple worship would be no more. It would be a, a pure, holy worship of Jesus as Lord and as Savior, even as we are gathering together here this day. So in conclusion, three thoughts. First, 
this morning, may we worship the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah and King. Messiah is the word for Christ, the anointed one, the one who came into this world to do the work and mission of God, namely to die on the cross so that we could experience the forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We are made right with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. That's what he did. Secondly, may we express our thankfulness and praise that is due to our Lord and Savior. That shouting of Hosanna. May we never grow tired of giving praise and honor and glory to God. May we never, ever take for granted this incredible act of God Almighty becoming a human being, living a sinless life, being spat upon, being ridiculed and mocked, even as he hung upon a cross solely so that we might experience the forgiveness of sins and enjoy fellowship with God forever. May we always have a heart of praise for what he has done. And lastly, may we not engage in exchanging a formality, but rather a heart of reality of Jesus as our Lord and King. May we meditate upon it time and time again, what it means that Jesus is our King, that Jesus is our Lord, that Jesus is our God. And we are to be living for him. We are to be seeking his will, doing his work. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he indeed is the Messiah. He is the king. He is the ruler over heaven and earth. We thank you that one day he is returning to this earth and will reign in this perfect righteousness and holiness and and justice. And we say with the Apostle John, the writer of the book of Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus. But I pray that you would give us a heart of real praise and thanksgiving this morning as we celebrate all that Jesus has done. Lord, may we not be indifferent to it, and certainly may we not be angered by his claims. But Lord, give us a heart of humility that acknowledges the need that we have for Jesus as our Savior. To acknowledge the goodness of God in sending his Son that we might experience the forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. Oh Lord, give us hearts of faith. Give us a response of worship and praise. And may we identify with the Lord Jesus, taking this message to all, inviting them to find their needs met in Jesus and in Jesus alone. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.